Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we collaborated on a groundbreaking exhibition that gave a voice to Cook County's prisoners, streamed Chicago's underground music scene worldwide, and heard about the growing dangerous white power movement. All this plus the Trump Diaries and new size matters only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 21st, 2018. Maria Gaspar presented Radioactive in conjunction with Lumpen Radio, projecting images on the walls of the Cook County Jail while we simulcast prisoners' own stories right here on WLPN. Learn more about this groundbreaking project in these excerpts. Radioactive is part of the Lumpen Disruption. Mm-hmm. Sunrise, sunset. Well, 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 look a here, look a here. Welcome, come on down here. They told me you were coming. Yes, sir, they did. You see, most folks are ordered to come to see me. Very few come here on their own, so I'm just tickled pink to see you. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So I, I took a little time to gather up a few facts about my family and me. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Like you youngins say, I'm gonna drop some knowledge on you. Yeah, yeah, I thought you, I thought you liked that one. Okay, yeah, yeah before you ins- explore the insides of me and all. See, me and my family, our roots run really deep. Our history is a long one. It's like human society and my family are locked together in existence, like we both need each other. Throughout history, my kinfolk have been in books, musical recordings, and even on the television. Yeah, my great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy, for example, was the main character in the classic tale, A Tale of Two Cities, you know by Charles Dickens. That's right, they call him the Bastille, (laughs) yeah. And then there was that, that boy, Johnny Cash, yeah, that was his name. He spent so much time with my uncle, He wrote songs about him. I know you heard about it. Now, let me see. Oh, let me tell you about my three pretty little cousins. They're television stars. That's San Quentin, Alcatraz, and what's that snooty girl's name? Uh, 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 Rikers Island. She's always on Law & Order. Oh, yeah, let me tell you about some of the famous folks who have passed through our gates. Well, first and foremost was that boy, he was completely guiltless. What was his name? Yeah, Jesus Christ. That was, yeah, he, well, he, he didn't spend that much time with us. But then there was that boy who worked for him, the Apostle Paul. Lord have mercy, he went from prison to prison all up and down the, the, the Asian minors and stuff. Yeah, and then there was... Oh, yeah, yeah, Mandela and Martin Luther King, they used me and my family as a sounding board to show the world racial injustice. And then, what? I tell you what, let me tell you about some of my personal best. There were these governors from the state of Illinois, Lord, they love coming here. And and then there was... Uh, See what was a uh, uh, Dillinger, John Dillinger. Oh yeah, and you know my most famous guest was Al Capone. Yeah, yeah. No, we had to build a separate cell for him. That's right. Well, before I let you go in, I just want to tell you that me and my kinfolk, 
we coined the phrase, we'll leave the light on for you. Yeah, that's right. So, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on through. I'm going to let you through, and you can see the rest of the places on the inside. But remember, come on back. I want a soul. I hear people say, I am tired all the time. I see people do everything. I want a soul. I want to know what a feeling is. I think emotions is energy. If so, I got plenty. I don't really know. I'm just hearing things. I don't know what the words really mean. One day, a human plugged into me a lamp. I watched through the light as he was reading a book to a kid. When I heard him tell the kid, a God said, let there be light in the woods. Hmm. Then he told the kid the same God blew air into man and he came alive. If that's true, why don't I have a life like humans? I'm confused. Who is this God? Can he give me a soul like humans? Because I don't give light to earth. I give light to humans. Is this God related to me? Because I'm connected to connections who have connections to connect to connections. I want a soul. I feed TVs, computers, houses, restaurants, companies, jails, even courthouses. I am the one feeding the streets like day and night. I see pain, rape, abuse, murder, and corruption. Everything and anything under the light by me. And worst of worst, when it's dark because of me. Here I stand attached to this wall that controls 96 acres with what I think is energy. I can move faster than 186,000 miles per second, hmm. faster than any human being. I enjoy watching everything humans do, cooking, working out, even dancing, hey, even giving birth, everything they do. I want what humans want. That's possession, fame, money, prestige, or any material desire that outweighs my desire to be a channel for manifestation and glorification. You can't get rid of me. Mm -mm. I'm the socket that everyone needs. I know the human mind will always think beyond the unthinkable for fire, light, or power. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, mister on the bathroom, though, or you either, Mr. Coffee on the wall. And to my favorite cousin, I switch over mall. One day, within these 96 acres, I'm going to find me a soul. I, the saga, have spoken. I have seen good people turn bad. I have seen bad people turn good. I have seen people from many different races and many different neighborhoods. My skin can be thick and tough, or it can be fragile and thin. But I have seen joy and pain on a daily basis, and within myself I hold it in. I cannot talk and I cannot move, but if I could speak, only God would know the words that I'll choose. I might be big and tall, or I might be short and small, but one thing that is for certain is that I have definitely seen it all. Do you see me, or do you just look past my pain? Like the people who look through my soul as they are wishing for freedom to gain. Please don't get mad when you talk to me because my expression is plain. Just remember that we are both beautiful creations and to not be afraid of change. P.S. A window with a soul.
I'm the eye in the sky. On a regular day, I see guys peeking out of their chuck hole anxiously waiting for the CO to open their door so they can run out and do what they do on the deck. Get their spot in front of the microwave, the phone, or set up their spot in front of the TV. The creativity is phenomenal around this place. I witness guys wash and iron their DOC attire all in one process by scrubbing their pens with a peanut butter jar topped with warm water. When they're finished, the pens look as if rigor mortis have set in on them lines hard and sharp. Like if bread fell on them, the bread will clean slice in half. But on the other end of the table, guys may have a spades game going on. Heavy competition. Guys can go on for days and days and weeks and weeks playing that game. It's similar to an ongoing war, playing day for day, back to back for one team to get their upper hand. It's mostly used as a mechanism to do the time. The time eats itself up when the game's being played. Also, other games are played like chess and poker. They're also very competitive. Guys put their all into it, being the best. On the next table, I witness guys put together gourmet meals, hooking it up from scratch as if they were cooking in a five-star restaurant, ingredients straight from the commissary list, using stuff like tuna, ramen noodles, summer sausage, cheese, hot peppers, chili, onions, and things of that nature. I even witnessed a few cakes get baked on days of guys' birth. I also witnessed guys' poetic, deeply touching, heartfelt letters written to the different people, loved ones, giving major time and work to it. Guys reaching deep, getting into their more sensitive, thoughtful side in this barbaric atmosphere. On the flip side, I seen guys take bumps and scrapes for various reasons. Maybe if one comes back from court and got blindsided with news that he wasn't looking to hear, he comes back and somebody rubs him in the wrong way, or he had prior feelings with someone, and now that anger gets released. On another guy, may have things going on back at home, and he looking at the phone to get things worked out. Yes, he bumps heads with another guy using the phone, and things can go from there. I seen fights jump off for various things, from card games turned into a trash talking match or arguments over a point of knowledge on who possesses the correct answer or who's the best player in the NBA or a lot of beef that comes mostly from the young and the wrestling where the fights kick off based on where you're from and do you run with the rival guys, fights over the microwave or the TV which we call the idiot box or what set was making the most noise out there on the streets. I even seen the guards take some bumps and scrapes. Just as well, sometimes they would have to be the ones dishing them out. It can get real chaotic around this place. But on the lighter note, I seen better days. I seen guys gather up for movie night, nights like the NBA Finals where guys celebrate with big meals, have a good time, root for their favorite team, make plenty of noise, high-five and clap. Only thing they're missing is the liquor. They replace it with Kool-Aid and coffee cups. From up above, it looks really fun. I also have witnessed more inspirational stories. I witnessed a team get together on the table and create a legal machine and work guys out of the system. It's amazing. I see a lot day to day. It's never predictable, but it's never ending and definitely spontaneous. Check them out. That's it.
Labor Express discussed the growing hotel workers' strike in Chicago. The largest ever action undertaken in that sector has 6,000 workers off the job at 26 hotels in our area. Host Jerry Mead Lucero discusses what Unite's action is trying to accomplish, how media coverage is shaping the narrative, and what the workers are actually fighting for. Labor Express airs every Sunday at 7 p.m. On this program, we're discussing the citywide hotel strike launched by Unite HRE Local 1, currently affecting some 26 hotels and 6,000 workers. It's the first citywide strike organized by Unite HRE Local 1, the Hospitality Workers Union, and one of the largest private sector strikes in the city in recent years. A historic event to be sure. So let's hear directly from the hotel workers. Beat TV producer Andrew Friend made it out to several of the picket lines across the city to talk to hotel workers about why they are on strike. In particular, we'll hear the workers highlight concerns over their health care. One of the real problems with hotel work is its precariousness. Hotel workers are often laid off or have their hours cut in the slow season. Even more egregious is the common practice of hotels cutting off the workers' health benefits when business is slow. So we're here with Larry Lewis, uh, who's in Unite Here, Local 1. Uh, you know, tell us uh, what's going on today. It seems like there's a little action going on in some of these hotels. Oh yeah, we this day three of the strike. We out here for, you know, trying to make sure we get better living, better health care uh, benefits wages and stuff like that. We out here. It's day three of the strike. And, you know, we got to show them that we really need our health care. That's what is really most important and about, the health care. So describe the situation that a lot of the hotel workers have to deal with in terms of how many, how long throughout the year they have health care and stuff like that. Well, I'm a senior guy, so I'm like number four in the houseman. So a person up under me like that might only get health care maybe seven months out of a year. You know, because it gets a slow period. So then once they health care dried up, because you got to work one day in each month in order to get health care. So if you don't, you don't have no health care for five months, sometimes six months, because when you come back, you have to work a, uh, a certain amount of hours to accumulate to catch up to get health care. So, so allegedly in this country, we have like a, a universal health care plan. Um, uh, uh, Talk a little bit about how, you know, most most people's insurance are still tied to their employer and 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 and, and, and employment and that kinds of stuff. You guys, probably, because you're employed like a certain amount of time of the year, you probably can't qualify for the ACA uh, for the other parts of the year, can you? No, we don't. We you can't go even go get a medical card. This is how bad it is because they first thing they pull up is you're a full-time employee when you go apply for these things, and you're not because you're at home suffering for five or six months. And, and it's sad that, you know, these places, big companies like this, Hilton, a Fortune 500 company, right? They always bragging about how much money they bring in, but in, and they claim for love for their employees. It's not there. And now we out here. So if they had so much love for us, why are we outside? Um, so uh, uh, tell me a little bit about the timeline, about, like, you know, when did the contract expire? You know, when did the strike vote happen? Stuff like that. Well, the timeline that the contract uh, expired August 31st. And they had a 
numerous enough time to try to get with us. We didn't negotiate it for like almost a month and a half with these people. It still wasn't no go. It was it was basically they just don't want to talk or want to give. And now, you know, we had to do a strike vote August 15th just to prove that we was serious. And now they see we serious and they still come out with these stories of they trying to negotiate and no, they, they can't be, because I'm on the negotiate team. And it's another lady named Tina on the negotiate team. Bobby on the negotiate team. Sherry, Lamont, Lakita. You know, these people are on the negotiate team. These are from Hilton Properties. If we out here on strike, that means they're not negotiating with us. So that means we asking them, call Karen Kent. Her phone work. It's not cut off. Her number's still the same. All they got to do is call her, and we can get this fixed. Um, so uh, it sounds like you're describing that, that the, the negotiating committee is mostly like a rank-and-file uh, negotiating committee. It's mostly the people who work in the hotels, right? Yes, yes, that's what it mostly is. So we own it, we at the table. So you can't give us them stories So because we out here, we're able to tell the people what's really going on. I'm actually out here to show the people the truth so there don't be no more mishaps and saying, oh, it's this, we're trying to negotiate, and that's not true. It's a lot of stuff that's not true with Hilton, and, that, and that's the biggest thing is the negotiating part. Nobody's talking to us, and, and we're just trying to figure out why they ain't calling Karen Kent. And to make it so bad, our office is only down the street. So, you know, this is what we're trying to figure out. Why ain't no calls? So, um, you know, we're on day three of the strike. Uh, what, um, what sort of results are we beginning to see in terms of, like, you know, other unions and, you know, vendor deliveries and stuff like that? Oh, man, we've been getting so much love from Cook County um, Union. Uh, just the CTA ride pass blowing horns. We got truck drivers blowing horns. I mean, it's just crazy right now that the whole city support us because they know what the Hiltons and Marriott's and Sages and all these major Fortune 500 companies doing to us. And it's sad that they sit back in their offices and they got these people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and they don't think them the people you should be trying to get rid of because if a GM sitting in the office and he making 500,000 a year, and after three years, this guy a millionaire. Why y'all not taking his money? But yet, I work three years, I don't even barely make $60,000. But yet, you want to take my health care, my benefits? The, the numbers just don't add up. It seems like the big company likes stepping on the little person. And that's what continue to keep going on. So, you know, talk about uh, the concept of, like, withholding your labor, the concept of going on strike as sort of a last resort. Um, how does that empower people? How does that um, bring everybody together? Man, I mean, you know what, be honest, nobody wanted to go on strike, like, really, like, because we love our job. We ain't going to see it and say, like, it's bad. But at the same time, it was like our hands was forced because they, they don't want to pay us, they don't want to give us health care, so that obviously means that you don't care. Then you bring in temps. If you say you're trying to negotiate, why y'all sneaking the temps in the back door? Because that ain't negotiating. That means that we're trying to continue the business at any cost without paying. And now, you know, it's time to pay up. All we ask them to do is pay up. So show us the love. That's all we want. We want that healing love. You know, our GM right outside right now moving luggage, but he loves us. Where's the love? You got guests standing out the door, but they, they, they upset. They don't like this. But where's the love at? We ask for change. We ask for equality. We tired of them making the differences in race. We tired of that. So it's a lot around here that we tired of, and that's why a lot of people was out here. It shouldn't be no difference in what color you is and who you is, and it, it, that's what's going on. You know, and that's a lot of problems around here too, because if you look around in the Palm House alone, the white workers make almost two dollars more than the black workers. Yeah. So look around and see, and then they they, they sit here and they try to say they pretend like this don't happen. 
That's why we out here. We out for equality. That's the major thing, equality. And healthcare. That's what we out here for. So, um, like, you know, people are coming to town, they, you know, they want to stay in a hotel, they, you know, they're going to, oh, I'm going to be a tourist in Chicago for the weekend or whatever, um, uh, you know, and, and their hotel's on strike. Um, what, what, what should they do? Should they, should they continue to go into that hotel or should they? Welcome to crazy town. This is what they got to expect. If you go in there, you got to expect poor service, poor everything, because the people who make this hotel is standing on the outside. So if you really want a good service hotel, make them make us come back in by signing that contract. That's what we asking them. We asking all the guests to come out, stand up for us. You know this wrong, everybody know this wrong. You paying this good money for great service and you not getting it. Force these hotels to bring, out, bring the workers back in. Uh, my name is Michael Harris and I work at the Palomar Hotel. Uh, tell us what's going on today. Uh, well, basically we're out here striking because the hotel is trying to strip us of all our benefits. They're trying to take the health care away. They're trying to add more rooms to the ladies. And uh, when, you, when you're part-time and you go on, and if you're not working uh, full-time in, uh, in a, in a winter march, you lose your health care. And we don't think that's fair. So we're out here fighting, and we're trying to keep them a job and keep them working. If you work 32 hours and laid off in the winter, you lose your health care. And that's just not fair. And that's why we're out here striking. And trying to raise the room credit on the ladies is not fair. They went from 13 rooms to 20. No, we're not going to let them get away with that. It's just unfair treatment. They're working a lot of hours, and they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid. When you say their room count, you're referring to like the number of rooms that have to be cleaned and stuff? or That is correct. The number of rooms they have to clean normally is 13, but now they want to raise it to 20. And that's just not right. And then in the off-season, they lay off the girls on the, on the bottom. So only the top girls are really working, and they're throwing more work on them. So we're out here fighting for that. And we're out here, basically, it's for the insurance. If you cut off the insurance, they got kids, some are, are, are got diabetes and uh, they got, got medical cares, and they need that. They need it for their families, and that's where we're out here. And I'm out here supporting them, and I'll be out here until we win this thing, and I know we will. Size matters, size matters, with Kyle Seismankowski. Hey, Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the war years that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? Ed's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks apiece. Mm, Kyle, A piece? Uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Remova? Uh, what you call it? Uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Well, it's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true. Or, eh, at least it's not true for me. What, what you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were 
always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom, well... Are you gonna take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. I, and it's true. I was just a kid until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a post or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport, I stay on my side, and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So, it was 1986. Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... <clears throat> I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a bigger squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying... That she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and I, that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Purple stacks, Adam Eve on a raft, wreck mood juice in 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what, you living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was? Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait. Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh, yeah. Real well. Just please... No. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We, we do not. not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later.
This week on The Trump Diaries, Manafort finally folds and flips. Trump's Supreme Court nominee is accused of sexual assault, derailing his confirmation. Trump lies about Puerto Rico's death toll from Hurricane Maria and blames the Democrats. And Florence rips the Carolinas. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 602, September 13th. The feds are investigating a series of suspicious financial transactions between participants in the 2016 Trump Tower meeting with Russian nationals. Aras Argalov, a Russian billionaire with strong ties to Trump and Putin, used overseas accounts to distribute money through a web of banks to himself and to two people who attended that meeting. Those transfers occurred shortly before the Trump Tower meeting and then immediately after the 2016 election. Under intense pressure, Trump signed an executive order authorizing sanctions against foreign countries and individuals who attempt to interfere with U.S. elections. That order requires any federal agency aware of interference to submit this information to the Director of National Intelligence. Trump called Puerto Rico's San Juan's mayor totally incompetent. Carmen Yuliz Cruz had blasted Trump after he called Hurricane Maria an unsung success. In fact, 3,000 people died in what most agree was a botched FEMA rollout. Trump also called Puerto Rico, quote, an inaccessible island with very poor electricity. Day 603, September 14th. In a bombshell, Senator Dianne Feinstein gave a letter to the FBI that detailed allegations of sexual assault committed by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh while he was in high school. The letter alleges that Kavanaugh and a classmate committed a sexual attack on a classmate some 35 years ago. Kavanaugh denied the allegations, which led to calls to delay the nomination process. Trump lied and accused Democrats of inflating Hurricanes Maria's death toll in Puerto Rico. Trump, quote, 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. He added, I love Puerto Rico. In fact, an independent assessment accepted by the government of Puerto Rico and many on Capitol Hill put that death toll at 3,000, not partisan politicians. The Trump administration redirected $200 million from various DHS programs to ICE accounts. Of the $200 million, $93 million will go toward immigrant detention and $107 million will go toward deportation expenses. Congress warned of ICE's, quote, unsustainable and profligate spending habits after the move. Trump is currently detaining some 12,800 immigrant children, which is a record high. Day 604, September 15th. Paul Manafort copped a plea deal and agreed to cooperate with the special counsel. In the deal, Manafort pled guilty to financial crimes, violating foreign lobbying laws and attempting to obstruct justice. Manafort also agreed to forfeit multiple properties and bank accounts, participate in interviews, provide documents, and testify to a grand jury. The plea deal is also pardon proof. Manafort's forfeitures, estimated at $42 million, will also pay for the entire special counsel investigation. Trump, who had praised Manafort previously for fighting the charges, was oddly silent on the plea deal. Analysts said Manafort's deal greatly increases the pressure on the White House and vindicates Mueller's strategy. Hillary Clinton published a scathing critique of Trump in The Atlantic. Calling him a tyrant who is corrupt and enriches himself at the public trough, Clinton also accused him of disregarding the law and weakening the social fabric of the country. Calling it a democracy in crisis, she implored voters to reject him and his candidates in November. Primaries closed with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo easily beating back a challenge from the left from actress Cynthia Nixon. However, voters rejected six of the eight incumbent Democratic state senators in New York. Overall, Democrats have selected pragmatic candidates, largely eschewing far-left figures to challenge Republicans in the fall. Day 605, September 16th. The death toll from Hurricane Florence hit 16 as an astonishing 37 inches of rain caused catastrophic flooding in the Carolinas. One million were without power, and the city of Wilmington was cut off from the rest of South Carolina by the flooding. On the other side of the globe, Typhoon Mangut has caused landslide in the Philippines and hit the heavily populated Guangdong province. 
At least 64 are dead in the Philippines. Climate change, which Trump denies is real, has increased the power of hurricanes by an estimated 50%. A United States Border Patrol agent was arrested in South Texas, suspected of being a serial killer. Four people were killed around the city of Laredo. That agent, Juan David Ortiz, was captured after a woman who claimed she'd been abducted, escaped half-clothed, and sought help at a gas station. Day 606, September 17th. The woman who accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault revealed her identity and offered new details about the incident. Christine Blasey Ford said that Kavanaugh pinned her on a bed, groped her, and covered her mouth to keep her from screaming. Two Republican senators have now asked for a delay in the confirmation process. Kavanaugh has denied the allegations, which blindsided Congress. Ford also agreed to testify before Congress as new details of the letters continue to emerge. Ford initially made the allegations public in July and passed polygraph tests. In addition, she had told friends of the assault many years prior and sought therapy and counseling in the immediate aftermath of the attack. White House spokesperson Kellyanne Conway surprisingly told Fox News that Ford's accusations were credible and that Congress should hear them, dealing another blow to the Republicans' attempt to fast-track Kavanaugh onto the court. Kavanaugh was subsequently summoned back to testify. He will now appear before Congress again next Monday. Day 607, September 18th. Trump imposed $200 billion of import tariffs on Chinese goods. That is almost half of the material goods from China flowing into the United States. Said Trump, quote, tariffs have put the U.S. in a very strong bargaining position with billions of dollars in jobs flowing into our country, and yet cost increases have thus far been almost unnoticeable. If countries will not make fair deals with us, they will be tariffed. More than 1,000 products would be subject to a 10% border tax. Multiple companies have warned the tariffs could torpedo the U.S. economy. The House is investigating reports that FEMA had Brock Long repeatedly misused government vehicles to commute from Washington to his home in North Carolina. Long is already under investigation by the Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General. He alleges he did not knowingly violate agency rules. However, his top aide was suspended in the wake of the investigation. Trump capped the number of refugees that can be resettled in the United States next year at 30,000, drastically slashing a program that offers protection of foreigners fleeing violence. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claimed it reflected, quote, the daunting operational reality of a humanitarian crisis. In fact, hardliners had pushed the limit to be even lower at 25,000. Under Obama, refugees were allowed in the country at a number of 180,000. Only $143 billion of the $2.7 trillion parked overseas have been repatriated, according to an analysis done by the Wall Street Journal. The Trump tax cuts were designed to allow companies to repatriate those dollars, but so far only two companies have, Gilead, a pharmaceutical company, and Cisco Systems. Trump ordered law enforcement and intelligence officials to classify documents related to the Russia investigation and other inquiries. The move is the latest example of Trump siding with Republican allies rather than law enforcement. Little evidence has emerged to back Republicans' assertions about the investigation and possible bias. Trump declassified text messages about the Russia inquiry from a handful of law enforcement officials, summaries of interviews in the case, and documents related to the surveillance of former Trump campaign aide Carter Page. Day 608, September 19th. In a new tell-all book, Stormy Daniels reveals Trump did not want to be president and claims he offered to cheat for her on his reality TV show, The Apprentice. She also luridly details their sexual encounter, calling him smaller than average and comparing him unfavorably to the mushroom character in Mario Kart. Michael Bloomberg is considering a 2020 presidential run as a Democrat. Bloomberg has committed $80 million to help Democrats retake control of the House. Trump again attacked Jeff Sessions, claiming that his confirmation hearing scared him into recusing himself. I don't have an attorney general. It's very sad. A lot of people have asked me to fire Sessions. And I guess I study history and I say I just want to leave things alone, but it was very unfair what he did. Republicans are privately 
deeply worried over the Kavanaugh confirmation, with one telling Axios, quote, this is the ugliest situation possible. While no other reports or accusations have come forward, Republicans are scrambling to investigate past episodes in Kavanaugh's life that involve heavy drinking. Internally, Republican committeemen are furious that the deep background check on all judicial nominees did not catch this incident. Trump lashed out at one of his top allies, Ron DeSantis, accusing the Florida Republican gubernatorial candidate of publicly betraying him. Trump called DeSantis profoundly disloyal for not going along with Trump's lie that the Hurricane Maria death toll was inflated by Democrats for political purposes. Florida has an enormous Puerto Rican population. Trump is very seriously considering Warsaw's request for a permanent U.S. military base in Poland, saying Poland would be paying billions of dollars for a base. Poland has committed $2 billion for the base, which, however, is just a tiny fraction of its actual cost. In addition, Poland's proposal for a permanent American base in its soil is a potential violation of the 1997 NATO-Russia Founding Act. However, Trump is sold on the idea because Poland pitched it to him as Fort Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 chatted with author and historian Kathleen Bellew about the rise in so-called alt-right culture in America. Bellew discussed the roots of the paramilitary movement, America's long history of racist white power groups, and how Trump's rise has fueled growing discord in our nation. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Please give a warm, warm Pilsen Community Books. Welcome to Dr. Bellew. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So uh, tonight we're, we're discussing this book, which is out now from Harvard. Uh, Dr. Blue has written a history of what she calls and terms the white power movement in America. Uh, I'd like to actually just start at the beginning because she uses a very specific description to talk about a group of people that I think some of us have had other names for, such as neo-Nazis, the alt-right. And uh, if you would, if you don't mind dipping into why you chose that particular, po- that particular phrase in this entire book and why you think it's the most historically accurate. Sure. So one problem with nomenclature has to do with dividing people up artificially. Um, historians, like many people, I think, like to come in and make order out of chaos. So we like to sort people by their belief systems. Um, in this case, um, trying to tally how many people are in the Klan, how many people are neo-Nazi, how many people are skinheads among some of the constituencies I write about. Um, the thing is that the lived reality of this is usually a lot messier. People move between belief systems, between groups, and even between ideologies with regularity over decades um, in the archive of this study. So one thing to understand is that white, white power is an umbrella term meant to convey the way that those different belief systems are coming together and informing each other in that time period. The other thing has to do with the phrase white nationalism, which is maybe the most frequent Um, I would say misnomer for the movement that I'm describing. Um, When we say nationalism, the image that comes to mind for a lot of people has to do with like hyper-patriotism. And people think about sort of a over-exercise of something that many people think of as a fundamentally positive value. Um, And that's partly because when we say nationalism, the implied nation that people think of is the United States, which is the nation that I would think of as my country and many of you might think of as an, as your nation. Um, that's not what these activists think of when they think of a nation. The white power movement is nationalist, technically in the poli-sci sense of that term, but they're talking about a transnational racial nation 
of white people that is going to stretch across national boundaries and is constructed eventually to um, expel other people and deny rights to everyone who is not part of that white racial nation. Now, that is a white power ideology. That's not the same thing as an over-exercise of nationalism. One of the, the subgroups of the white power movement that you mentioned frequently um, is the Christian identity group. I, I had never come across that before. Can you um, explain to us what that what that group is? And I, I did want to mention, too, before we uh, get further into the discussion, we're talking about post-Vietnam until the fall of the World Trade Center um, in our discussion today. Obviously, it's continued, but I just want to make that point because that's the time frame that the book falls over. And I also want to mention, I never start the show, and I don't know what I was doing earlier. but uh, um, So I want to just get those two points across. But if you want to talk about, because I, I know after reading the book, I know that we went um, prior to Vietnam, a lot of the white power groups in America were more um, nationalist. And then after, we had a lot of disenfranchised veterans coming back, and then it became anti-government. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the the way that happened? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me backtrack. There are several questions. Um, yeah, that's sorry. how we roll in the One show. One was about the periodization of the book. So thank you for clarifying that. I should just say I'm a historian. This argument stops cold at 1995 because that's when my archives end. Um, the kind of study that I'm trying to do in this book is based on a huge and voluminous paper archive. Um, the advantage of that kind of study is that you get both people's actions and what they say they're doing, right? So both rhetoric and the actual record of people's life and work um, over many decades. Um, it's a wide view and that lets us connect all of these groups into one movement and understand how they see themselves in a different way than say sociology where you get a snapshot of one group in a very finite amount of time, right? Um, well, these, are the, these are just to correct or amplify, I guess, these are white power newsletters and newspapers and what, what, where Seems. were these archives? Let me come around to that. Okay. So, so um, the reason it stops in 1995 is that I can't keep going. The archive um, that I use would not be available for the present moment for another few decades. So it's not a kind of approach that we can extend into the present without some bumps in the road. Um, so the archival base for the book, as you say, includes white power ephemera collections. Um, so newsletters, magazines, correspondence, pamphlets, posters. Um, also the records of watchdog groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center who were keeping tabs on these groups and often sending in undercover informants. Um, the work and notes of local journalists who are covering this over time. Um, the newspaper accounts of the events in question um, which range across the United States and also into Mexico and Nicaragua in the case of mercenary soldiers. Um, and then a ton of stuff that I got through the Freedom of Information Act from um, the FBI, the Marshall Service, and the, back, the uh, ATF. Um, so all of that together gives you a lot of different perspectives, right? It, it includes the public messaging of the movement, what people were saying to each other in private um, within the movement, how um, the FBI was interacting with the movement, which had a huge range of different possibilities, um, and then the newspaper coverage. Um, and one important thing about that last part is that nothing in this book is revealed for the first time in this book. Every event I talk about was covered in a very substantial ways by the press at the time that it happened. So the Greensboro shooting, for instance, which is an event in 1979 we can talk more about, was the Saturday Night Live sketch, um, a deeply unfunny Saturday Night Live sketch. Um, the paramilitary training camps were reeled on programs like Good Morning America and the Today Show. These were major stories in the Christian Science Monitor, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the um, 
in uh, the Oregonian and the Houston Chronicle. Um, so the question is about our apparatus of understanding, right? It's not that we didn't have a chronicle of these events, it's that we didn't have a historical frame to understand them as part of a story. Did you think about interviewing? Um, I did think about interviewing. Um, there were a few cases, though, where I had very good firsthand accounts of people at the time of action. So um, one thing that happened was a lot of undercover reporters infiltrated these groups and FBI informants infiltrated these groups um, and got the kind of questions asked that I would like to ask of some of the actors. Um, and what they said in that moment is not the same thing that they would say in their self-published autobiography, say, 10, 15 years afterward. So in the end, I, I sort of, I, this is where I'm a historian, historian, and I sort of let the archive be the authoritative source. Um, let me circle back to your first yeah, thing. Yeah. So Christian identity is, um, was a, well, is a political theology that is both a religion and sort of a white supremacist worldview. Um, and it posits that... Um, white people are the true lost tribe of Israel and everyone else is descended from a different source. So either from Satan or from animals, depending on who you ask. That includes all people of color, all Jewish people. Um, it goes on like that. Um, it, it's similar to British Israelism. Um, dualism is another one that's sometimes lumped in with the same set of people. Um, creativity is another one. Um, was that Matt Hale? Was Matt Hale? Mm -hmm. He's World Church of the Creator. Yeah. Yes. We, he actually, Matt Hale was from the northern suburbs of Chicago, and we actually had to create a library policy based on the World Church of the Creator. And not me personally, I worked for the Chicago Public Library, but because he was using libraries as a place to speak publicly, um, I believe it's changed since then. We used to not allow religious groups, but I think now anyone can use it. But there was actually, it was because of him. And he killed somebody, correct? Didn't he mm -hmm. shoot someone? Um, I believe so. I would need to double check the notes. Yeah, I th and he did. One of his supporters said, "Thanks, Joe." I think. I mean, the the shooting in Skokie, the one that um the the one that's become the name of the race in Evanston, oh, yeah. the race for hate. That was that group. And uh. We were talking before the show a little bit. You know, I learned about most of these groups from alternative media, basically going to Quimby's in the 90s, sitting there, and, you know, reading the... Because a lot of the alternative... And Jamie, I'm sure you remember this too, in the 80s and 90s, like the alternative or punk rock press, mostly leftist, but also some extent to the right, covered these things in great detail. And, um, and it, it was interesting when I was reading the books, I'm like, oh, I know a lot of this stuff. And it was just, you know, just from hanging out and trading magazines and and I think that's one of the things we've lost with you know some of the a lot of the print stuff going into blogs because we don't have this community that that we used to have yeah that's really interesting about um thinking about how materials circulate between people of different viewpoints, particularly because in that time period that you're pointing to, um, where zines and other alternative media were really sort of like a point of interaction, um, it was also a moment when this white power movement was making this big pivot to try to recruit urban skinheads, right? So this is a movement that had been largely um, understood as um, kind of rural, conservative, socially conservative, um, survivalist, right? And if we think about the Klan that confronted the civil rights movement, 
we don't think about younger skinheads in urban centers, right? But by the time we get into the white power groundswell, particularly in the 80s, um, this is a movement that stretches across regions. It's in cities, suburbs, and rural locations. Um, it crosses gender, it crosses class. Women and families are very important. And these alternative spaces like punk rock scenes are sites of contestation between um, racist skinheads and non-racist skinheads, between different kinds of alternative cultural formation. Lumpen Radio presented its first ever worldwide live video stream in conjunction with Giles Peterson's Worldwide FM. Today's show features excerpts from Chicago Overground. This segment closes our show with the music from AACM Great Black Music Ensemble.
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lump and Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lump and Theme, background and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump and Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.